Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Marty Smith America podcast here on ESPN Podcasts. I took a little vacation, took the week off last week, so uh, sorry we weren't here for you guys. I know that we're amazing therapy for some of y'all. This is therapy for me, getting to talk to Travis, getting to talk to my subjects all the time. And today's interview subject is a great friend to me and one of, if not the greatest writer of our time. Uh, ESPN's Wright Thompson, and he and I were just texting last night about a couple of things and and ideas that he had and ideas that I had, and I'm like, man, just come on my podcast tomorrow. Let's rap a little bit. And it is a meandering, wandering, random conversation about various stories that he's done and people that captivate him and what he still wants to accomplish and all those types of things. And it's definitely going to be just the first installment of what I believe will be several if he has the time and I can run him down because I just have so much more to discuss with him. He and I could talk all day. Um, I marvel at his talent. I fancy myself as holding a decent pen, but uh, he writes me under the table in his sleep. And uh, I just his reporting ability and his ability to string words and sentences together is just just jaw dropping. Uh, and as I said to him, when I bring him into the interview, he has created this lane in sports media or, or maybe media period. But I feel like at our company, he certainly has where he's able to take the time and and the care and the craft of quality over quantity. And that's a very rare blessing in, in this world of 140 characters and instant gratification. He can take several months and craft a masterpiece every single time he does a story. And in a lot of ways, I'm envious of that. In many ways, I'm envious of that. Because when Wright Thompson writes a piece and produces a piece, it becomes an event. It's not just another story. It's an event because it hits uh, the internet. Now it's, it's ESPN.com. But, it, you know, recently, in recent years, it was ESPN, the magazine. And then all of a sudden, it's an outside the line story. And the next thing you know, there's 30 for 30s being produced based off, based off of a piece that he did. He is one of the few writers where I don't care how long the article is. I will devote how much time it needs to read that article because he does have some lengthy pieces because he's that talented. But I, I will, you know, sometimes I'll see an article and I'm like, this is a long one. I don't feel like reading it. But if it, Wright Thompson's name is at the top of it, you read it. Well, yeah, you're, we're all willing to invest that time, again, in an instant gratification society where we get so much of our information from a hundred character snippets on Twitter. And what he does is he dives so deeply into whatever the subject, whatever or whomever the subject matter is that we completely relearn and reestablish what we thought we knew. And I just, again, my admiration for his talent and, and my God, that voice, I mean, that voice is, is a, it's a it's a landmark voice uh, within sports media and across sports media, and I'm really appreciative that he gave us the time he gave us. Well, it's funny that you talk about trying to track him down uh, 
couple years ago, I reached out to him to see if he could come on. And uh, the response was, I got the green egg going and I've had a few beverages. It's probably not smart for me to talk. That's my boy. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing about Wright's, just his voice and the narration that he provides is it's this it's this authentically southern whiskey bent grovelly kind of tone and it's just i mean it just sound it just sounds so authentic and it's just it's just awesome uh so y'all are going to learn a lot in this interview i certainly did and I just feel like I feel unfinished. I feel un, like I don't feel like I got where I wanted to go because there's just so much more that I wanted to touch on, but you can't keep a guy, but you know, 30 minutes when you're as busy as he is. So y'all are going to love it. Trust me. Y'all are also going to want to check out our friend Mina Kimes and her podcast, the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny. If you want to be smarter when talking about the NFL, make sure to check out Mina's podcast, download and subscribe to the Mina Kimes show featuring Lenny, along with Marty Smith's America, wherever you get your podcast. I don't even know how Mina has time to do a podcast. She's on every single show ESPN has every single day. I mean, like she's on NFL Live, then she's on Around the Horn, then she's on Highly Questionable, then she's on Sports Center, like then she's on SVP. I just don't. I don't know. It's crazy to me, man. I, I don't know how those guys have time to do anything. Man, you, I mean, she's everywhere, dude. It's awesome. Speaking of good, that's a solid segue. Uh, as I said, Wright Thompson is just has stupid talent and may well be the greatest writer of our time. And I was thrilled to get to spend time with him. Here's Wright Thompson on Marty Smith's America. All right. I've been trying to run you down for – I feel like three years to have this conversation with you because I feel like you've achieved the impossible in today's media. You've carved out this amazing lane of quality over quantity in which each piece that you print becomes this event. Whereas most of us are in this rat on a wheel, quantity, 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 quantity scenario. So to me, you're kind of like a, an artist in Nashville who has the standing that he or she can cut a record every four years instead of every year like everybody else. How the hell did that happen? How did you get to that place? <laughs> well, I mean, obviously now that we're talking about it, uh, it's going to come to someone's attention. And uh, so <laughs> it's been nice. That's a very good question. And, you know, as uh, I talk to college students all the time, and I'm always, look, jobs are harder to get than they are to do. But, you know, I've just been very, very lucky. I mean, you know, I've had, like, not to get really in the weeds on it, but, I mean, the answer is I've had, you know, some really great editors at ESPN who were after the same things. And ultimately, you don't work for a big place. You work for, like, the four people you work with. You know, and I think your experience at a place, you know, when people talk about what's the culture of a company, it's really the four people you interact with, you know. And so uh, my first editor was Jay Lovinger and then Paul Kicks. My editor now is Eric Neal. So, I mean, that's a tremendous amount. It's three people in 15 years. And that's a lot of stability. And when these things are really working, I feel like the stories are 
like there's no such thing as a good idea or a bad idea. There's only an idea that you're interested in or not interested in, and you can't really fake it. And so I feel like these things work best when the stories are almost an accidental byproduct of a really long conversation with you and an editor, you and two editors. And uh, so the stability has meant that like, you know, we just sort of roll from one to the next one and they're all, they're all connected in ways, even if most people can't see them, like one leads to another. And, you know, every story we go do, we find three more out of it. And so like, that's usually how it works. I mean, the biggest problem with not traveling to me isn't the ability to do stories. It's the ability to find them. Everywhere I ever went, I found three or four ideas. You know, if I was going to Phoenix for, to interview Clayton Kershaw, I would stumble across four different things that would sit in the pocket and they might come next. They might come three years from now, but like that, you know, the, having the brakes tapped on all this travel is, I mean, the hardest part is that like, I feel like none of us are refilling the story tank, you know, because like, that's where ideas come from. I mean, it's sort of like, I don't want to make fun of uh, a friend of mine. I have a meeting with this week. Uh, uh, John, I hope you're listening. Uh, but like we scheduled a brainstorming session on our schedules, you know, and I'm just like, that's not how it works, man. Like you're having a meeting to come up with ideas. You're doing it wrong. And so it's just a struggle, man. We're doing the best we can. I mean, you have to get on zoom and talk and do all that. But like, it's sort of like to me, trying to come up with ideas without being in the world. It's like an engine without oil. I mean, eventually it's just, you know, it's going to start that smell and then you're done. Yeah, it does. You talking about that reminds me a lot of songwriting because that's what, that's what great songwriters do. They get in a room together and they have a, a, a nibble of an idea and then it becomes a piece of art in, in, a, in an increment of time, uh, depending on how those ideas unfold. So I wonder what piece do you feel like was your most resonant to date? Which one, which one garnered the most response? You know, well, those are two very different questions in a, in a weird way. I mean, the thing I wrote about the masters of my dad, I, I get emails about it. that thing ran 14 years ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I get emails about it all the time. I did uh, like a big late night, talk show last night and so if I do something like that they're going to ask about Michael Jordan you know uh, I'm sort of like the, the next one you know I'm working on a story about Penny Hardaway right now and that's the only one that matters to me mm. I mean it, you know it, I don't like I don't go back and read them I don't like all that nostalgia shit, you know uh, although you know uh, uh, unless we're talking about the Ole Miss Rebels but uh, no, I mean, I, you know, the, whatever the next one is, I mean, I know that sounds like a cliche or bullshit, but I mean, that's real. I mean, you know, whatever the next one is, is the one we're super interested in. What's it like sitting on a porch with the, the Mannings and just talking about life? You know, it's interesting. I got a text a couple of days ago from Archie just checking in. I'm sure he's got a list of people. Uh, he's a pretty normal guy considering everything that's happened to him. And, you know, growing up, uh, in Mississippi with, you know, my dad really admired Archie. So, I mean, he was the first famous person I was ever aware of, you know, it's odd to know them, you know, but they're really lovely, normal people. Uh, and you know, Archie, I don't know where, if he learned this from his grandkids or what, 
but Archie's emoji game is really strong, and I don't know what I feel about that. I mean, Archie has a large emoji vocabulary, and I, I, somehow that feels wrong, but it's also perfect. What's his go-to emoji? Which ones he use the most? Well, he likes thumbs up. He likes cry. He likes crying, laughing. But when he's making fun of himself, uh, here, hang on, I'll tell you. As Wright has now, Wright has now stopped the video, ladies and gentlemen, and he's going to go to his Archie Manning text thread and relay to us Archie's go-to emoji game. All right, we've got uh, we've got the 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 yellow face covering his mouth and a glass of whiskey. Uh, we got a football and a fist pound. That's a good one. Oh, fist, there's another fist pound. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, Oh, that's another of him sort of covering his face in embarrassment. Uh, another fist pound, laughing and laughing, crying emoji at himself. Uh, fist pound, fist pound, laughing, crying emoji, covering the mouth emoji. Okay, that's interesting. I never really put the pattern together. All right, that's see. He's got some good diversity in his repertoire. Much like how he attacked the uh, quarterback position, he attacks his emoji game. So detail your path for me. I know you grew up in North Mississippi, go to Missouri, all that stuff. But how did it all unfold? You know, I went to Missouri. I, uh, I got a job right out of college that I was very uh, – I was an intern at the New Orleans Times-Picayune. And uh, the uh, sports editor was a guy named Steve Rocca, uh, who uh, – well, if you want a funny sidetrack, just Google Steve Rocca at New Orleans Times-Picayune. Uh, he went down in flames. But he hired me and then immediately got fired. And uh, uh, I was like, well, I got to work really hard. Uh, and I was the LSU beat writer and I covered Nick Saban for 13 months. And then uh, I got this job that I probably had no business having uh, at the Kansas City Star being the, I mean, essentially the job I have now was the job I started doing in 2002, except that, you know, we did it, uh, we did it a lot faster and a, a lot lower level. I mean, it was interesting to me when I started working with Jay Lovinger, all those stories I'd done and I thought were really good. I just realized how, you know, when I got to ESPN, I realized that like there was another gear that not only did I not have, I didn't even really know where it was. And so the luck of landing here and then immediately being hooked up with Jay Lovinger who edited Pete Axtelm and Gary Smith and, you know, uh, Hunter Thompson and David Halberstam and, you know, like landing with someone like that was random and completely lucky. I mean, so if there is a moment when uh, everything changed for me, uh, it was certainly when I met him and just the way of thinking about stories and talking about stories was different. Uh, he, uh, it was invaluable to me to work with someone who was successful enough that he didn't really care about ESPN or if anything went well, he didn't care what the traffic was. He didn't, he didn't care what any buses above him wanted or what their priorities were, or what the org chart was. He just didn't give a shit. He really didn't. And uh, so he was always like, you just, yeah, you just do the things you're interested in and I'll cover you with everybody else. And so not only was he a brilliant editor, but it's just, you know, that, that made me feel totally protected and like I could just go try stuff. I mean, we wrote, so we did crazy stuff. You know, and so, you know, I did that job in Kansas City where, you know, I did it. I wrote a Sunday 
sort of magazine style story, we call it newspaper term, which I, I love newspaper lingo. So the newspaper lingo for these stories, what people now would call long form is a takeout. And the, the, I don't have a newspaper here, but the opening pages at the center of a newspaper. So where it's like that double broadsheet at the very center, that is called the double truck. I just love the, like newspaper is really good lingo. Uh, but anyway, I wrote a, sort of a takeout every Sunday for, I don't know, four or five years for the Kansas City Star and then got to ESPN uh, and was lucky enough to land in Jay Lovinger's lap. You know, he died last year and it's, uh, uh, it's just, you know, it's, it's, one of those, it's just a tremendous loss for everybody. Uh, but, you know, that, that's where it really started with Jay sort of uh, basically saying, yes, you work for an enormous company, but you need to be on some sort of very personal quest uh, that all of these stories are pieces of, but that the quest is clearly articulated in your own mind. Even if you don't have to tell anyone else about it, that, you know, so that every one of these things leads to something else and you're constantly improving and it's one long conversation. So like that whole idea and way of doing it flowed absolutely from him. When did you realize you'd found the next gear? The first big story I wrote for ESPN was on Dale Jr. He and I rode on a helicopter around New York City because we had to fly. He was doing the Daily Show. Uh, and uh, and then he had some Budweiser event out on Long Island. Do you remember uh, who hosted that event by ever. chance? We, that was you. That would be at the Budweiser distributorship. So, <laughs> so we met you there, but on the way there, we needed to stop to eat. And so the guy who was like the VP of marketing for the Budweiser distributorship was like, I know this little Italian place. And we walked in and the only other table was a engagement party for two insane NASCAR fans <laughs> who were at this little neighborhood restaurant in Long Island and it's empty. And they, there's this long table and they're toasting and giving speeches and in walks Dale Earnhardt Jr. And it's like, it was like a Saturday Night Live skit. The look on their faces were like, and he was actually really nice. Like he gave them a phone number or someone to call to get pit passes for the race as like a wedding present. And he like, but we walked in and he got made immediately. And I was just like, Oh, this sucks. <laughs> like, I don't want, but he was really, really, really kind and generous with them, which is the only thing I really remember about that day. Uh, because it was just, I was just like, Oh, well that's, you know, that's nice. But you know, I liked that story, but that story felt like um, just a little bit, evolved from those newspaper stories. I did a thing about a basketball player who went to Brazil and disappeared. His name was Tony Harris. And, uh, you know, I still get Christmas cards from his widow. Uh, and, uh, you know, she and I got close and, you know, they, they couldn't figure out if he'd been murdered or if he'd committed suicide. And so I went down there with that as the question. And she gave me tremendous access to you know their instant messenger records and emails and credit card statements and so like i really had you know i had his room service bill from his last hotel and like so i really had for the first time insight into what was going on inside someone you know it was really and that story i feel like that was the first story the rest of my life i mean i i wrote that one really quickly but it was also uh it was, I think it was just something different than the other ones. I remember Rob King, who, you know, I love Rob to death. I adore him. You know, Rob, we go way, way back. And uh, uh, I remember that story ran and he caught my phone rings and he was like, you know, it's an 860 and that's never good. 
you know, I mean, I looked at my phone says 860 and you're not programmed in my phone. Graham Reaper. Like, well, this is not going to be good. Yeah. hundred percent. 860-766. I start shaking. And so <laughs> me uh, too. Yeah. I'm like, I don't want any part of this. Rob was like, I read this story. It's unbelievable. I pulled your contract. How about we tear this one up and do a new one? Mm. And, uh, you know, the amount of personal loyalty I feel to Rob is tremendous because he didn't have to do that. And I certainly haven't forgotten that phone call. I can tell you exactly where I was standing. I was at my in-laws house in between the little breakfast room and the kitchen when the phone rang. I mean, I remember that clearly because it was such a sort of, you know, we bought a house then, you know what I mean? Like it was a different, anyway, uh, that story really to me felt like the start of something. Rob's a beautiful soul. Uh, I just talked to him yesterday. I pitched him a show yesterday and he, he was the person who for the short lived lifespan that there was a Marty Smith's America television program. He was the reason he just liked the brand of TV that my team and I were making in that moment and said, I want more of this, go get every interview subject you can find and let's do it. And I am forever indebted to him, and I tell him that all the time. No, he's a really good guy and is also really smart. And, I mean, you don't – I'm like – I'm just enough scared of Rob not to with him. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, he's he's the real thing. I – for those of you guys Uh, listening who who may not know who Rob is, he's he's an executive at ESPN, and he is – to Wright's point, an extremely brilliant man with foresight so much, so far beyond my feeble mind. And when he, he, I mean, look, these are two country boys sitting here talking about life and he gave us both a life. No, that is for sure. Uh, uh, but that's a little far. Let's not, Rob's head's big enough. The, uh, uh, but no, it's funny. I mean, like he, he very much, there are a lot of people who I think feel that way. You know, I feel that way about John A. Walsh. I don't know if you yep. sort of were at ESPN before he, uh, but like I still, I talked to John A. the other day. Uh, if I miss a call, I'll get a text and he's like, it's an emergency. And I'll call him <laughs> and he'll be like, have you read this book? I'm not an emergency, John A. Uh, <laughs> an emergency is a very specific thing. I feel like all those guys are down in Florida, all those retired ESPN executives in Naples. Like someone needs to do a story that's like ESPN Golden Girls Except yes. it's Walsh and Vince Doria and Odenheimer and Steve Anderson and all those dudes down there. Because in my head, all they do is sit around and have coffee and critique the job that the current executives are doing. Wouldn't you? No, I would be fishing. Yeah, me too. I'd be. I'd be like, good luck, guys. Your problem. Your problem now. Hey, have you read? There's a if you, there's a book by a guy named Monty Burke called Lord of the Fly. Have you seen that? Yes, I've, I have. Yes. I love that book. I just, mm-hmm. I read that over uh, Christmas break and it makes me want to learn how to tarpon fish, which I've never done. Not read it yet. Uh, Plan but it's to. It's just like that whole, it's really good, but it makes me want to learn how to tarpon fish. These guys are, I mean, like these guys fly fishing for tarpon. I mean, that's crazy. If you're like, get on YouTube, these videos are nuts. I mean, it, th- those things hit that line. Uh, it's like a submarine hit it. I mean, it's unbelievable. Anyway, that's a total tangent. Oh, it's exactly that. I mean, it's just like, you know, they talk about like, if you don't know what you're doing, it'll take your finger off. What reporting subject most fascinated you? Uh, 
I mean, I'm really fascinated by Michael Jordan still. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's probably one more Jordan story to write. Uh, I want to wait a little while. Uh, Michael is, uh, I want to go fishing. I speak, you know, Michael loves to deep sea fish. Did you see they won that Marlin tournament somewhere in North Carolina? Nicest boat uh, I've ever seen. He has this really, it's so, in the, you know the name of it? What was it? Flight 23 it, or something? great. Catch 23. Yeah, Catch 23. That's brilliant. It's really brilliant, man. Yeah, it's funny on like three levels. And that's him. Michael came up with that. Because I the, the first time I saw that, I started calling around people know him. I'm like, all right, I got to know who named the boat. And they're like, honestly, Michael did. Uh, but, you know, I mean, it's interesting. It's going to be interesting to see what uh, – I wonder what Tom Brady is going to do when he retires. Uh, you know, he keeps talking about wanting to play to 45. And, you know, that feels – I mean, just from the outside, like, he's avoiding something. I mean, the reckoning comes for everybody, you know, and – uh you have to figure out how to make peace with the fact that you used to be Michael Jordan or you used to be Tom Brady. Uh, you know, I'm a, Dale Jr., like from afar, I know he's your friend. You probably have a bunch of insight into this, but he's always just seemed basically happy in a way that a lot of people aren't. And uh, I imagine some of that is the lessons from watching his dad. He's just been in it. He knows what's real and what isn't. Are you shaking your head? Is he not happy? I think he's happy now. I think he's so full of joy yeah. and fulfillment now, but I don't think he was until Amy came into his life. I think when his wife came That's into his life, it tore down walls that he had built around himself that were impenetrable in so many ways because he did not want to feel hurt again. So he would not take chances. Yeah, He would not fully live. And then Amy came into his life and those walls came down. And now he's this vulnerable, open heart that uh, it's just beautiful to watch. I mean, look, man, he's been a friend of mine since 1998. And the Dale Jr. that I knew for the first increment of years pre-Amy and post-Amy, it's a completely different human being. It's not even the same man. So he's happy now. See, that's what's interesting. I mean, I think because I rarely – you rarely meet a retired superstar who is – well, who is as happy as you think they should be. And I think that's instructive for all of us. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, I wonder what Tom Brady's going to do, you know, uh, is he going to be like Ted Williams and like just become obsessed with something else? You know, uh, the, uh, I mean, you read about Ted Williams, Ted Williams. Well, I mean, speaking of, Mo- the, of Monty Burke's book, I mean, he talks, Ted Williams was a, was one of the best fishermen in the world and had nothing to do with that. He used to play baseball, you know? And like, I've always thought that was really interesting that he, he is inside the crazy insular world of, of tarping, tarpon fishing, bone fishing, it, you know, salmon fishing up in Canada. Uh, he is, you know, revered mm-hmm. by people who are not impressed with celebrity. Yeah. He was revered. And I've always thought that was really interesting. It is. Uh, and like juniors, you know, I mean, it's like juniors yeah. context is different though. The reason juniors context is different is because 
concussion, he was in a position where he just wanted to be able to see and walk again. Like he wanted his yeah. whole goal became, I want to walk my wife down the aisle and get out of bed and have a quote unquote normal functional life. And so his context changed so much. Whereas MJ, it was father time that took MJ from the game. It wasn't injury. It wasn't yeah. some sort of strife. It was, it was father time. And that's what's fascinating to me about Tom Brady is the damn guy gets younger. He's like living in reverse. I don't, I don't get it. There's this video I just saw recently where some guy gets in a side-by-side -side with a blocking dummy on the back of it and tears ass across the goal line and there's three footballs on the ground, and Brady picks up the footballs one by one and fires them and hits the blocking dummy in three separate spots square on the nose. And you just go, God That's almighty, great. man. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because there are two ways to look at that. I mean, one, you know, what's he, what sort of reckoning is he postponing? But the other thing is, if you are – feel fully free and in full expression of your life's work, why would you want to stop? Mm -hmm. I mean, you would want that feeling to last forever. And like, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's no more complicated than that. If it's like, you know, why wouldn't I want to do this as long as possible? Cause like when everything's working, it's like this, you know, you know, all of a sudden, you, you know, if you could play jazz like Charlie Parker, you do want to do nothing but play jazz. So, I mean, it, I'm very interested about, uh, very interested about uh, watching the Super Bowl and then seeing sort of what happens after. Uh, I've ordered my Arthur Bryant's to, for Super Bowl Sunday, get my Kansas City on. Love excited it. about that. I love it. Yeah, that was my, my next question was, what subject is kind of in your crosshairs that you're really intrigued in, in maybe trying to chase down? And sounds like Brady might be the guy. You know, it's interesting. Uh, uh, Actually, today is the day that Seth Wickersham's pre-order link is up on Amazon, and he has a book coming out about uh, – uh, it's called It's Better to Be Feared, and it's a story about the uh, New England Patriots dynasty, and uh, uh, it's unbelievable. I mean, it's uh, – you know, I, I, I'm lucky enough to have read a draft. Uh, I mean, Seth, Seth is already considered certainly the, you know, the best football writer in America – but like this, this book is uh, every single person who is interested in the NFL or who is interested in the quest for greatness, not just in sports, but in any form is going to want to get this because it's just the full arc and, and uh, of the New England Patriots and uh, really inside stuff. Uh, so I think I'm going to leave Brady to him, I guess is what I'm saying, because uh, I think when this book comes out, I mean, it's going to be one of those things that, like, you know, this is the best book ever written about the NFL sort of thing. Wow. Uh, so I'm very excited for him. Uh, yeah. No, it's really something. Uh, uh, I mean, it's, it's beautiful and thoughtful and obviously deeply reported. But it's a really, really, you know, uh, I, I, I did my pre-order today. So, uh, but I'm, so I, I, you know, I think I'll leave Brady alone. Uh, you know, I'm very interested. I'm interested in the idea of travel because of, we've been still so long, uh, you know, I'm talking with, uh, with TV folks about a thing. So evidently the, the, the record, the coast to coast driving record has been broken 
numerous times during the pandemic, I guess, because the roads are empty, like those cannonball run lunatics. So I've been, we've been circling around on that. That's really exciting. Uh, uh, I mean, a bunch of, it's just a bunch of stuff going on that I'm really excited about. Uh, I, uh, Got a call here in a little bit about a story that hopefully we can do. So I don't know, man, a lot going on, which is nice, but I'm ready to, to, I'm ready for movement. One of the things I wanted to do before the pandemic hit, I wanted to take Mickey Mantle's two adult sons and the three of us drive from Dallas to Yankee stadium and then just talk on the way. I don't even know about what, uh, I mean, Mickey presumably, but, uh, so I'm very interested in, in that. And like, you know, these real iconic names that we think about that don't even feel real. I mean, I've like, I've been talking back and forth with Joe Unitas, whose father was Johnny Unitas. And it just blows my mind when my phone rings and you look down and it says Unitas, comma, Joseph. You're like, holy shit. You know, like, I remember when I worked in New Orleans, I did a story about Pete Maravich and I was talking, I'd left a message for his wife, his widow, and uh, I think his son was playing for LSU or something. And my phone rang one day at my apartment in Baton Rouge, and I looked down, and it was a 985 number. And the caller ID said Pete Maravich. And I was just like, whoa, you know, because I guess they just had not changed it. So, you know, I, I like ways in which you can show how these big names are – they're still tentacles of their actual lives in the world. You know, Charlie mm-hmm. Connerly, who was the star quarterback, back for the New York Giants in the 50s. Uh, I mean, the star. You know, he was the first Marlboro man. I mean, he was a really famous guy. He is from my hometown, Clarksdale, Mississippi. I knew him as the sweet old man who read, ran Connerly's shoe store. Like, I didn't even really – he was very normal and unassuming. His widow is still alive. You know, like, there are these people who we think of as existing in the firmament like Cary Grant or something. And yet there are people who knew them as human beings still around. That's really interesting to me right now. I don't, I don't fully know why or how that's a story, but I'm interested in that. I'll get you out of here on this because it's a good segue to my last thought. And I'm really grateful for your time. I know how busy you are and, and whatnot, but of course we were chatting last night on text and, and one of those individuals to me, one thing that's so fascinating to me about yesteryear is that because we did not have constant streams of information at our fingertips, our heroes were mythical in ways they aren't today. Like if LeBron James had been LeBron James in 1964, the myth of LeBron James would be Paul Bunyan-like. And that's the way that I view Junior Johnson. And one of the thrills of my life was for two straight years at the NAS, I'm a NASCAR Hall of Fame voter. For two straight years, I sat beside Junior Johnson during the vote. And I found myself not listening to a damn thing being said by the panel. I was just like staring at Junior and watching him stare. Like everything everybody was saying, he's like, oh, yeah, God bless. I smoked all these. But it just just a fascinating figure. So I, I, I'm going back now and I'm rereading Tom Wolfe's The Last American Hero. And as you and I, like it made me, it, it, I injected that into our text conversation last evening. And I asked you, what story that someone else wrote do you wish was yours? And your answer was interesting. Share it and why. Well, I mean, I think they're two contenders for the greatest magazine story ever written. 
and uh, I feel pretty strongly that I'm right about this. Uh, one is Tom Juno's uh, Fallen Man. Tom works for us now. I mean, he's just the goat. That story, uh, I have, you know, it, it's just, it's perfect. And then the other one is uh, a fabulous writer named John Jeremiah Sullivan, who wrote a profile of Axl Rose that I just love. I mean, I, you know, I, that is a, one day I think I'll, I would like to have that gear, you know, that club in the bag. I mean, like he, uh, that story is really great. So it means those two, uh, you know, I mean, I've spent time with junior too. And you just are like, I walked through the pits of uh, what's that racetrack over in Winston-Salem. Bowman 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 Gray stadium. Yeah. I walked through the pits, uh, there uh with him and it was one of the most and all i did was i did it just to clock people's reaction uh and it was unbelievable and then to sit out in a lawn chair outside a race hauler at bowman gray and have junior johnson ask you if he can make you a slick meat sandwich is just one of the greatest things that has ever happened (laughs) i'm just like yes you 100 percent can junior uh you know i talk to lisa every now and then uh you know, it's a it's a tremendous loss for uh, for the Johnson family. I mean, that guy was an American icon. I mean, you know, you know, it was hard for me to believe. You know, he drove me all around North Wilkes County and was sort of showing me the old roads they used to drive. And I just had this out of body experience. Like I'm riding around with Junior Johnson, and he showed me where he used to run whiskey and drove me up the holler where he used to live. And it was just like, oh wow, you know. Uh, so junior something else. I mean, I was telling you, yeah, I mean, he, I, I did that, you know, I went, I'm sure you did it too, but I went and had breakfast at his shop at his house mm-hmm. once, you know, mm-hmm. cause they have all those old boys come from all over and they sit around and he talks about, you know, he just tells stories. I love, uh, you know, junior had a son very late in life. And so junior was already an old man when this kid was a boy. So uh, junior was telling me the story about the kid entered the soapbox derby and had to build a car. And so you can imagine, all of a sudden they're building this Junior Johnson's race shop. And Junior gets really competitive. And so he said, I'm hiding lead in it and and they're cheating. And you know, he, uh, and he, he called up the world drifting champion in Germany and got the guy to send him the wheels put those things on the car and junior said by the time we had that thing built we had to put brakes on it because once you rolled it down a hill it wouldn't stop <laughs> and the teachers whining that they were cheating and it was just like well don't invite junior johnson into your soapbox derby like you know the tiger didn't go crazy that tiger went tiger you know like don't what did you think was gonna happen and just the idea of junior johnson with his eight-year-old ten-year-old kid building the world's fastest soapbox derby car i was just like this is the greatest thing i've ever heard what a just just what an absolute legend very few people in history have fascinated me quite like junior and that's it i mean you you nailed it that's him if you ain't cheating you ain't trying i love it i appreciate you thank you for your time thank you for your for your amazing spirit and uh we're gonna have to do this again because I mean, like, I could sit here and talk to you all day. We just need whiskey, and it's like the perfect day. Uh, Too early in the morning. (laughs) Wink. Wink. I love it. Be good, brother. Thank you. See you. 
fascinating dude. Really appreciate his time. I mean, I could listen to his stories about the pieces that he's done all day long. Pour a little bit of Jack, listen to Wright, uh, just discuss his path. I mean, it's really – I mean, Michael Jordan, uh, he got time with MJ that – and I told him when the piece came out. I think it was almost 10 years ago now because it was when MJ turned 50. I remember that. I think Michael's like I, – I, I think it was probably almost 10 years ago. And, I mean, the access that he got to, to MJ, just – I was so envious. Still am. People that I still want to interview, Michael's at the tip of the spear. Did you ask Wright if you could be like his assistant or whatever and, and just go there with him? It, I'll just carry his fedora. Well, I mean, he did, I mean, Wright just did a book on, uh, you know, Pat Beast. I mean, he, he, can, he can write just about it and he can do anything. That's another thing I wanted to get into him about was the book writing process, but I kept him too long. Already. I mean, we didn't get into social media. So, I mean, we might just have to find a way to carve out a, a, a bunch of these with him. Love how he doesn't isn't beholden to social media. That's where I want to be. And, and someday I will someday. I will uh, completely be gone off the reservation, man. I will disappear. Just not yet. Speaking of social media, didn't you put out a yep. ask Marty? We haven't done ask Marty in a while. So we're going to get one question in here today from uh, at Jared with a bunch of numbers, five, two, three, three, seven, three, eight, nine. Is Jerry uh, a bot? Jared, I, who knows, but the question's a good one. What are you expecting for the Bristol dirt race this year? Oh, it's going to be badass, man. Uh, it's a polarizing decision by Bristol Motor Speedway and NASCAR to cover the world's fastest half mile, the last great cathedral, the last coliseum with dirt. A lot of people, including Tony Stewart, uh, my colleague Jenna Fryer from the Associated Press, had a piece recently with Smoke about how frustrating it was that uh, they chose Bristol to put dirt on rather than use Eldora Speedway. Tony's been invested in getting the Xfinity Series or the Cup Series to Eldor Speedway, which he owns, and uh, and they're going to put dirt on Bristol. But I think it's going to be badass, man. I just I don't know what to expect, but I know this: I, it, it, it has my attention. It's I'm going to I'm absolutely going to be waiting with bated breath for that race. I can't wait to see it. I don't know if I'll get to attend or not, um, but. I'll be paying really close attention to that race. I think it's going to be – I mean, the learning curve for a lot of these guys who have never run dirt or who have minimal experience on dirt, uh, it's going to be a hell of a crash course. Uh, and that, that might even be a literal statement. Well, the one thing is this is a decision by NASCAR that I think will get some eyeballs that may not – you know, tune in to every race just to check it out. And then who knows what you can gain from that? Well, it's telling. I mean, it's telling that NASCAR and its and its executive staff and its decision makers feel like they're in a, a, a position of transition because if you look at the schedule, they've made decisions to go to, like, Coda. They're going to, to, to run the F1 track at Coda. They're putting dirt on Bristol, all these – uh, uh, new opportunities to try to garner new interest in the sport. And um, certainly putting dirt on Bristol is one of those. I know that there's a lot of hardcore traditional people, not just fans, but analysts and competitors who feel like, man, don't put dirt on the damn thing, put asphalt on it. Like, 
like paid it. And so really polarizing decision, but I'm like, for me personally, I'll be paying really close attention to it just cause it's different. Uh, it interests me and be fascinating to see who prevails, uh, at that race and what it means for NASCAR in the future. Uh, I feel like it's a really transitional time for that sport and a pivotal, it's a pivotal time for that sport to, to see where they're going in the future and what they can be in the future. Um, you know, because like, if you look at over the past several years, you have great drivers have retired. Tony Stewart retired. He's still involved, of course, as a team owner, Jeff Gordon retired. He's still involved, of course, as a broadcaster. Jimmy Johnson retired, and he's not involved. Jimmy's going to race a part-time schedule in the IndyCar series. Um, Clint Boyer just retired. He's going to go be in the booth with Jeff Gordon and Mike Joy at Fox. Uh, Chase Elliott won the NASCAR championship, which is big for the sport because it's the most popular driver. Oh, Dale Earnhardt Jr., Dale Jr. retires from driving in the sport. He's now a broadcaster, still involved with NBC, and, of course, a team owner in the Xfinity Series. So the stars of – I don't even know if you call it yesteryear. Hell, it was just a couple years ago that the household names of the sport were the names I just mentioned. And now they're not racing anymore. So Chase Elliott winning the championship is the most popular driver in the sport as – the champion and face of the sport. And he's a really young driver, but like those guys, like, like, I mean, dude, they have so much responsibility on their shoulders. Chase, Ryan Blaney, Bubba Wallace, these guys that are the next wave, they have so much responsibility and they have to be willing to do everything it takes to promote NASCAR racing. They have to be present. They have to be available. They have to be, um, what's the word? Active is the word. They have to be so active in their constant promotion of the sport. Denny Hamlin, Kyle Busch, um, that's what they have to do because that's how the sport is able to be sustained. And that's a lot to bear, but it's what they got to do. Speaking of Chase, I uh, sent you a photo. I think it was on Saturday or Sunday. He was racing, and the stash that he's got going right now. It, I had it going. Is, I think he cut it off. Oh, it was beautiful. He should have kept that thing. It was. I think after the 24 hours of Daytona, the Rolex 24, I think that he – I saw something. I don't know the timeline. I think that they had a banquet type of thing for him, an award ceremony where they were awarded their NASCAR championship rings. And I think that Chase, uh, I think that the handlebar was gone. But you're right. I mean, it was very well done. I was hoping that he would then shave the beard and leave just the mustache. And then at some point you could say, say, shave the mustache. But it was, it was glorious, and I wanted to uh, have him keep it a little longer. Ryan Blaney uh, – Every every offseason, Blaney does – like, he'll grow a mullet. He'll grow a – right now he has this – I mean, his mustache. Dude, Sam Elliott would be proud of Ryan Blaney's mustache. It has – it's so thick, it, 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 like, curls under itself. And that's when you know that you have very – you have a very well-sculpted stash. Is, is Ricky still rocking the mullet? I don't, I don't know. 
I haven't seen him in a while. So uh, he, I mean, he had a good one there for a minute. It was a mullet with some, with some lines shaved in it. And you know, I appreciate that. I mean, did you yeah. see, uh, did you see Gardner Minshew's mullet? I, I mean, I didn't see his. Oh my gosh, dude. He looks like Joe Dirt. It's uh, it's unbelievable. I need to find a way to see if I can get a hold of him. We need to get him on here then. Yeah, man. It's a, it's a, it's world-class plumage. I mean, Gardner lives in Florida now, so he's got plenty of examples to look at. All right. That's Marty Smith's America. Thank you so much to Wright Thompson for his time and, and amazing storytelling. Thank you so much to our law enforcement officials all over the country, keeping our community safe, our fire and rescue teams running into the fire literally to save lives and so grateful for the United States military. Uh, so grateful for your sacrifice and, and, and everything you guys do every single day to offer us the opportunity and the privilege to live in a free country. I can't wait to see my boy chief sing the national anthem at the Super Bowl on Sunday. It's going to be bad ass to the bone. That's, that's one of those ones where like, He's performed all over the place, broken records, but the Super Bowl is the Super Bowl. Yeah, and wait until you hear Jasmine Sullivan. If you guys are not aware of Jasmine Sullivan, buckle your belts real tight because that young lady, wow, she can, she can sing her took us off. I mean, she she can sing so beautifully and – limitless range it's just the most beautiful she is a beautiful singer and so i can't wait for for all of us to get the opportunity to see eric and jasmine do their thing at the, at the super bowl it's going to be i like what eric said in the los angeles times this week like in this time in america it's awesome to have this unifying force with these two beautiful voices melding together to celebrate america I liked what he said where he's like, you know, I, I'm not Chris Stapleton and whatever, but I'm not saying no to this. Yeah, dude. I mean, look. And if you if you want to, like, I know there's people questioning how it's going to – if you want to doubt Eric and how he's going to perform, that's 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 your right to be wrong, but I think he's going to crush it. He is going to crush it. I mean, there ain't no question in that. Thank you all for listening. This is Marty Smith's America. We'll see you next time around.